All right. Uh, two passages this evening, uh, if you would please. We're going to read, first of all, Ephesians chapter 4, or from Ephesians 4. And then we will turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. I want to, um, as I'd mentioned, talking about transitions or transition, singular. Um, My intention is to spend the bulk of my time talking to us about the local church. And uh, so that will be our focus um, over the next few weeks. Let's pray, and we'll turn our attention to the text. Father, thank you for the local assembly and for this, our church. I pray, Father, your blessing upon us as we serve you, that we would know what is right and do what is right, that we would be faithful to you. And we pray above all and always that in all things your will would be done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and let's start tonight in verse number 7, and we'll kind of look at both of these passages over the course of the evening. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth, which is a reference to his burial and nothing more, his his earthly burial. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him into all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh the increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And then back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse number 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 27. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church. First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, 
After that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. And we will stop there. I realize, and I, I really do look over my notes before I get to the platform, but I realize that somehow I am a bit out of sequence. So what, <clears throat> what I'm saying, really there's a message that comes before it, but we're not going to stop while I go back and recover my notes and do all that. It will not be a cosmic disaster, but it is out of sequence and it bothers me no little bit. The prior message deals primarily with what the church is, and we will look at that more extensively. The church is Christ's body. And last week in our midweek service, I talked about three areas of, you know, kind of public import that in which I've experienced a significant change in position from the roots that I, that I came from. But I would argue that probably in no place over the course of 40 years have my, has my thinking shifted more significantly than it has about the church. The church, folks, is an amazing thing. An amazing thing. With no advertising, with no program, with no government protection, with no building, with no real hierarchy, in the span of 200 years, it turned a pagan nation into one that professed Christianity by law. It is an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing. We have so institutionalized it that I fear sometimes we have lost sight of what we really have in the local church. It is a building. It is an institution. It is denominations and the way over which they fight. What the church is, and again, this will be next week to go back and fix my broken order, The church is the body of Christ. And it has two assignments. Its first assignment is the assignment of evangelizing the lost. And not simply evangelizing the lost, but evangelizing the lost with the intention of making them disciples, followers. And then equipping those who are followers so that they become mature body parts. Edification. So that they are no longer children, but that they are mature, capable, functioning parts. Not simply of a local assembly, but of the body of Christ. And the question that I want to give some attention to this evening, and not by any stretch exhausted, at least not to my satisfaction, is how will the church do this? How does a church do this? What is available to us to accomplish our twin missions? And we have no others, folks. The church has no other mission than those two. Unfortunately, as part of our institutionalized mentality, we are inclined to answer that question with some variation of the concept or the word program. The church is to evangelize the lost. 
well, what's your program? What, what time do you have soul winning? And what day of the week do you have it? What's your program? And the church is charged with <clears throat> maturing the saints. And again, how will we do that? And unfortunately, too often in our thinking, in our conversations, we default to program. What's your discipleship program? And at the risk, folks, of being cranky and cantankerous, I would like to point out to you that Westwood Heights Discipleship Program happens every Sunday at 10, every Sunday night at 6, and every Wednesday night at 7. The church is the discipleship program. The church, that's what the church does, is discipleship. Makes disciples, matures disciples. It's not an adjunct function. But well, we have church, and then we have a really great discipleship program. Discipleship is the program of the church. If you look at the Bible, if you bring the question to the Bible, how will we do what we have been assigned to do? The answer is never in a program. There are no programs in the New Testament. We barely know what happened on the Lord's Day. I mean, we know the church has met. We know nobody's order of service. We don't know if Corinth had a different order of service than Ephesus. We know there was a consistency of doctrine, but we have no idea. We don't have, we don't have any idea if Ephesus sang six hymns or if it sang one hymn. We don't know any of those things. There are no discussions about programs. The answer that I want to focus on this evening is this one. The new, part of the New Testament answer, not the only New Testament answer, but part of the New Testament answer is how will we accomplish the mission? And the answer is not programs, the answer is people. People. When God talks about the church, he talks about people. Because people are the church. Look, I'm as guilty as anybody. This is the church. And I say to my wife pretty much on a daily basis, I'm going to go down to the church. But the reality is, you're the church. And I'm the church. And this is just a building. And if it burned down tonight, the church would be inconvenienced but the church would not be anything else than inconvenienced. So let's turn our attention to the text. Okay? Let's turn our attention to the text, and we'll begin 1 Corinthians 12, 27, and 28. The church is people, but <clears throat> the church is God's people. And we will come back to this. But God arranges people in the church according to his will, so that we may accomplish his purpose. God arranges people in the church so that he may accomplish his will and according to his purpose. Verse number 27 of 1 Corinthians 12. Now ye are the body of Christ. And you know, of course, that the word ye is plural in the King James Bible. Ye is technically a reference to the plural, more than one, ye, you the church at Corinth. 
and members in particular, there is the singular. We are the church, and we are members in particular. We have individual identity, we have individual responsibility, we have individual ability, and we constitute the church. The church. Verse number 28, and God hath set some in the church. And that word set is the word that refers to appointment or sometimes ordination. And this is the work of God. God has placed people in the church. And some of the people that he places are people like these. Verse number 28. First, apostles. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healing. Helps. Governments. Diversities of tongues. He says, by the way, the same thing with reference to people in general in verse number 18. But now hath God set the members... Every one of them in the body, as it has pleased him. As it hath pleased him. Because the church is God's. Right? The church is, on the one hand, people, but on the other hand, the church is God's people. And this is something that I will probably address a little bit more detail next week, folks. But in a true sense, and one of the things that distinguishes the visible church from the invisible church is that in the invisible church, there aren't any lost people. There can't be any lost people because the true church is exclusively and only God's people. Ephesians 4.7 says the same thing, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So God has put people in the church and has enabled people in the church according to his will and his purposes. And this, by the way, and you know this, I'm not really going to say anything that you don't already know. But it's not reasonable, folks. It is not conceivable. It is not biblical that the God who sent his son Christ to die for the church, who is the head of the church, who is the groom of the church, is just simply going to leave us down here to flounder along the best we can, left to our own devices. Making the best of what we can with what we have. It is pretty obvious that not every local church is equally gifted, but that's not the point. We know that Paul said to the church at Corinth, you come behind in no gift. They had no excuse in their local assembly. Secondly, God has given to his body, the church, a variety of people whose primary contribution to the church is verbal in nature. God has given to some people to speak to the other people on his behalf. 
Paul has addressed that in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. He has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. Not all are verbal gifts, and after that there's miracles and healings and helps in governments and diversities of tongues. They're all valuable to God, but they are not all designed to edify the people of God verbally. Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, God mentions the way he gives a gift or that he gives a gift and says nothing else about the gift. You can turn to it if you want. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at Ephesians 4. But in Romans chapter 12, which is another passage that kind of lists some of the gifts. And by the way, folks, there are about three or four lists of gifts. And since none of the gifts are, are all found in all the lists, it, we might reasonably conclude that even the lists that we have are partial of things that God is doing for his glory, for his purposes, through his people. Romans 12, 5. So we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on his teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And, and I've read that, not because I want to talk to you about spiritual giftedness this evening, but because to point out to you that that is one of the most detailed explanations of the use of a gift that you're going to find in the Bible. You're probably still open, or perhaps still open, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's just look at verse number 28 again, and let's pose some questions to it. And I'm going to pass over the verbal gifts, because I'm going to come back to them. God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that, miracles. All right, now we can have, and we would have, and we have had an extended conversation about whether or not miracles are viable for today, and we tend to be cessationists and argue no. But let's just, let's just back the clock up, folks, to Paul's day, and we get this, and miracles are viable. What does the gift of miracles look like? Even more specifically, if you have it, how should you use it? Should you be brought up onto the platform and then you could impress people with public displays of your miracle-working power? What miracles can you do? And you're at a loss to answer that question from the New Testament. It gives no explanation. It just says that at least at one point in time, at some point in time, God gifted the church for his own reason with somebody who could do miracles. Or gifts of healings. Which, let's be realistic, when most of us think of miracles, we tend to think about the miracle of healing. What other miracle would there be? What other miracle would you want? Would you want the miracle of making money? <clears throat> Is this an appropriate place for a bad joke about... <clears throat> The miracle working power of a genie? Maybe it is. I won't, I won't go there tonight. 
What about helps? Folks, this is the only use of the word in the entire New Testament. What is it to have the gift of helps? And what does the gift of helps look like? And in light of the fact that you have one word in the entire New Testament that talks about this gift, helps. How would you possibly be able to definitively argue that you did have it or that you didn't have it? Or governments, and I find this one particularly fascinating because when we talk about governments, we talk about pastors and elders and deacons. But here is somebody who has a gift of governments. What do they do with that gift? Do you have the gift of governments? Have you ever one time thought, I think I have the gift. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that the gift of governments is telling other people what to do. That would be more along the lines of having the gift of bossiness. Are only those who are elders and pastors and deacons given the gift of governance? Or is it possibly that God has some giftedness of governance that doesn't involve pastors and elders and deacons? Tongues, which is most clearly a verbal gift, gets a lot of attention in chapter 14. Again, let's recover this, right? God gives gifts to his people for his purposes because the church is his body and nobody knows more about his body than he does. And nobody knows more about Westwood Heights than he does. And nobody knows more about all of the churches and all of the world and how they fit together and the work that they're doing together than he does. He puts people in positions for his purposes. And some of those people have speaking responsibilities. It is not necessary, folks, I would argue, on the basis of the scant evidence that we have, it is not necessary or probably even desirable for you to devise some battery of tests to figure out what gift you have. But, because here's where I'm really going with all this, the verbal gifts, right? There's nothing, helps, that's it. God gives some people helps. And I'm not saying God says this, right? So, I mean, to, to whatever extent it's irreverent, it's Ken Largent saying it, right? So figure it out. And God gives some people government. And some people at some point in time had miracles. And they're just there. But when it comes to the verbal gifts, folks, those are highly regulated When God gives somebody a verbal responsibility, they fall under a complete set of rules and regulations that God has for them. Let me just give to you one example. Here's one of the shortest list of gifts found in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, because that's how the gifts are to be used. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, 
Right? And here comes a regulation for those who would speak on God's behalf. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And the word oracles there, folks, is a, right? It's good word. It's a legitimate word, but it's just simply a translation of the word lagos. Let him say what God would say. If any man is going to stand up and claim to speak on God's behalf, then he had better say what God would say. And if any man minister, which we would understand to be kind of the counterpoint, the verbal gift and what are sometimes called the manual gifts, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. God gives him the gift, let him do it as God enables him. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God gives to everybody in his body a gift with which he intends that they serve other members of the body for the building up of the body. Some of those gifts are verbal in nature. Not all of them are. Thirdly, when God gives people verbal gifts, those verbal gifts are frequently noted for their distinction in function. 1 Corinthians 12.28 And God hath set some in the church first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. And now if you want to turn to Ephesians 4, because in Ephesians 4, Paul breaks it down even further. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 11. And he gave some, right? And this is the he God, verse number 7, 8, 9, and 10. He gave some apostles and some prophets. Well, Paul said that, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, are these offices or are these officers? And there's a sense in which they are both, but again, folks, you know, one of the things about, well, and we're going to get to this, and I talked a little bit about this, I mentioned it at the end of Sunday school. They're offices, but they're not, in the, they're not jobs. And I, I have, I'm not trying in any way to insult a job, but if, if a company needs to hire somebody to do a job, they will usually post an opening. Okay? God doesn't advertise for apostles. Apostle wanted. Great heavenly reward. Low earthly pay. Must be able to withstand hatred and unpopularity. Why these notion of distinctions? And I can't answer why God has all these distinctions. I can only point out 
that there are distinctions in the office in that the offices then and the officers that occupied them used their verbal gifts in somewhat different ways. Apostles. An apostle is a man who had seen the Lord. Who had physically seen Jesus Christ. There's more to it than that, but that is a requirement of that. This is part of the argument that Paul is making to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he asked the question, have not I seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Because Paul was being assaulted for being an imposter apostle. And he is compelled to argue that he is not an imposter apostle. And apostles were, no surprise, chosen by God. Galatians 1.1, Paul an apostle. Not of men, neither by man but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Eight of the nine times that Paul calls himself an apostle, he claims it in connection to either the will of God or the command of God. And one of the unique ways that these men write, Paul was certainly a preacher. We have record of his sermons, or at least some of his sermons. But unique to the apostles in their exercise of their verbal gifts is that God used them to write much of the New Testament. Mark's not an apostle. Luke is not an apostle. James, you can fight back and forth about which he is, but probably not an apostle. Jude, and then depending upon who wrote Hebrews. So a substantial portion of the New Testament, volume-wise, was not written by apostles. But in the book count, apostles wrote the bulk of the New Testament. And not only did the apostles bear the responsibility of writing the New Testament, the apostles function in an earthly way, right? Jesus Christ is the head of the corner of the church. But the apostles became the men who validated the existence of the very earliest churches. When in Acts chapter 8, Philip went down and preached in Samaria, the apostles came down and ministered there and prayed that those people would receive the Holy Spirit. They have a validating ministry. The apostles have part of their responsibility to put their stamp of approval on something as being a true work of God. Then there are prophets. And we know, this is, this is a problematic one to us, but we know that the New Testament had men who functioned as prophets. I'm not going to have you turn to it, but let me just read to you very quickly. Acts chapter 11, In those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Not only was he a prophet, he made a prophecy, and it wasn't an off-the-wall prophecy, it was validated, it came to pass. He, he, he met the test, and he passed the test. And the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And we see Agabus again back in Acts 21.10, informing Paul about the perils of going to Jerusalem, advice which Paul dismisses, which we can have another discussion about that. But Agabus' prophecy came true. He said, you're going you're to suffer trouble for going. And Paul said, don't. Don't try to break my heart with that. I'm ready to die. But the prophecy came true. 
Acts 13.1, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, prophets and teachers. Acts 15.32, and Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. What does a prophet do? He speaks God's words. And here is the the clearest example of of a prophet, right? I mean, you have Agabus, who is making an inspired prediction. And you have Judas and Silas exhorting the brethren with many words. Not making predictions about the future, but encouraging the brothers. And the idea of confirming there is to make them strong or to establish them. They were using their verbal ministry to build their faith. And this, by the way, Acts 15.32, is a Silas that ends up going with, Jesus, with, with Saul. Or with Paul. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. There are apostles, there are prophets, there are evangelists. And just as the, word, the office of prophet causes us no small complex or confusion, I would propose to you that no biblical office has been more abused than the office of the evangelist. The only evangelist in the entire New Testament is Philip. And what he did is what any biblical evangelist is supposed to do, and that is go someplace where there is no church and preach the gospel. The modern view that we have of men who are called to evangelism by which they mean an itinerant ministry of traveling from church to church holding revivals, goes back to a man we're about to discuss in the next couple of weeks in Sunday school, Charles Grandison Finney. I have, when I talked about the First Great Awakening, called George Whitfield an evangelist. He traveled around preaching the gospel to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And yet George Whitfield never called himself an evangelist. And while I would not be, I would not be deliberately cranky, and I'm not trying to be mean-spirited about this, folks. But there is a reason that we don't have evangelists come to preach at Westwood Heights Baptist Church. And that is because if a man is truly an evangelist, he's supposed to be preaching to lost people wherever they are not traveling around holding revival meetings in churches. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a need and a place for that. I'm saying that's not the office of an evangelist. Call yourself a traveling preacher. Call yourself a revivalist. Call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. But you can't co-opt a word that God gave, evangelist, and say, that's what I am. And we tend to think of, a, of an evangelist as that, as a guy who comes in and holds a revival. We're going to have a revival. How do you know we've got an evangelist? And by the way, pastors are instructed to do the work in evangelists, which is something I've thought often about. If being an evangelist is traveling around other churches holding meetings, and I'm a pastor and I'm to do that work, how many weeks a year can I do that? Not that anybody would want me to come and preach to them for a week, but... 
How many weeks could I be gone, folks, traveling to other churches to preach, to discharge the duties of an evangelist, since I'm to do that work? And then there is, back to Ephesians chapter 4, the pastor. The pastor. Some of you are aware, so I'm going to make mention of this so that you know that I am aware, but I am not going to enter into the fray as to whether or not pastors and teachers are one and the same or two. There's a lot of discussion about it. Based upon the construction of the Greek verbs and whether or not there is a rule that applies, calls the, the, the Granville Sharps rule, which would unite them, although some guys go the Granville Sharp rule doesn't work when you're talking about plurals like you are here. It only works when it applies to singular, so pastors should be one office and teachers should be another. And maybe that's so, but I'm just going to go with the conservative, traditional, tried and true that the pastor is the teacher and the teacher is the pastor. These are kind of God's spokesmen at local church levels. At the local church level. I mean, pastors are local church people. That's what they do. Apostles are instrumental in the work of the local church, but they don't generally lead a local church. Prophets speak to the local church, but they really are not assigned the responsibility of a local church. Evangelists, of course, are part of the church and are instrumental to the church, but they spend a lot of their time not in church because their job is to be out like Philip was, preaching the gospel where there was no church so that there can be a church formed and it can have a pastor. I don't even know that we'll talk about him, but there was a man back in the 1940s and 50s by the name of J. Frank Norris who pastored simultaneously a church in Texas and in Detroit, Michigan. But normally, and there is nothing at all normal about J. Frank Norris, if you know him at all, J. Frank Norris is the man who shot somebody in his office one time, among many other things. Uh, uh, but generally speaking, pastors are associated and affiliated with one local church. And, and we're going to come to this, and again, because I made a terrible mistake, and I'm somewhat out of order, we probably won't get to this next week, but in the not-too-distant future, the pastor folks of all of these office holders The pastor is unique. And he is unique in this sense. More than any other office held by anybody in human history, a pastor volunteers. Now we'll look at the texts. But if any man desireth the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And it is true that Isaiah volunteered, but it is also true that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Jeremiah made no secret of the fact that if volunteering was up to him, he would like to unvolunteer. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a wayfaring place, a lodging place for wayfaring men. Peter will make a similar argument when he talks about pastors that they are to do it willingly, that they are to do it willingly. 
And so pastors occupy a unique position in that, number one, they are strongly voluntarily. Now, you know, most pastors, and I would be one, would argue that we really believe that this is what God has for us. I'm not arguing against that. I'm just saying that no other church office, Paul always says, God put me here. God put me here. God put me here. And of pastors, it says, do you want to do it? Do you want to do it? Secondly, and this is part of their relationship with the New Testament church, pastors have an accountability to the congregation. Not just, I mean, I have a responsibility, but I have an accountability to the local assembly. This is unusual, folks. No prophet ever walked around and said, now I submit myself to the will of the people. But again, there are a couple of passages. We will see in Acts chapter 14 that elders, and maybe they weren't pastors, maybe they were elders, were voted in by the congregation. Again, could you envision a scenario in which Elijah said, I will only do this if you approve of me. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, against an elder receive not an accusation except it be at the mouth of two or three witnesses. He is not somehow elevated above the reach of the congregation. It is truly an unusual office and an unusual officer not by dint of personality but by virtue of the way God has placed the pastor in a local church. Okay, that's, that's where I'm going to stop this evening. And we will return to that. And again, my apologies to you.